Hi everybody, this is a recording of the sermon that I delivered on the morning of the 5th of February 2023. You can find today's passage on page 1145 of your Blue Bibles if you're following along. So I feel quite weird standing on this side of the stage and not wearing a guitar whilst I'm up here, Um, but today I'll be speaking on Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, He equates the power of God to the wisdom of God. And he emphasises that the Holy Spirit's role in making those things available to us is indispensable. Paul felt that edifying these things with pen and ink was worthwhile, uh, so I'm chuffed to bits that Simon has given me 15 minutes to tackle the colossal topic of God's wisdom. Paul begins with the phrase, testimony of God, in our Blue NIVs, but some Bibles say that this is God's message or God's mystery, And others say it's God's uncovered secret, which I think is particularly poetic. God's wise mystery is uncovered for us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's the mystery that God lived on earth as Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified, died in our place and was buried, and then God raised him to indestructible life. It's a mystery which becomes more and more glorious the more it is revealed to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the wisdom of God to empower the foolish things to shame the wise things. Paul writes that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So Paul makes it clear that the power of God is the catalyst for Christ's church to reveal the wisdom of God to the world. Anybody who believes in a creator God will say, well, of course he's powerful. He snapped his fingers and the universe came into being. But it's the Christian, uniquely, who says God's power works through me. Paul links knowing this gospel and trusting the power of God in the same way that Jesus does in Matthew 22. In verse 29, Jesus told the Sadducees, you guys are mistaken because you don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Before arriving in Corinth, Paul had learned that evangelism is not actually a wholly intellectual task. Jesus had said, apart from me, you can do nothing in John 15, but Paul had given it a go anyway. On his first missionary journey, he showed his inclination to try and argue the gospel forcefully in public. As a Pharisee, he may have received some training in how to do this. It was their preferred method. And you can think of Paul as the captain of his university debate team. However, looking back, I think Paul went, now hang on a minute, I've been thrown out of one city. In another city, they tried to stone me to death. Uh, In another, I got thrown in a dungeon. I started a riot in the next city. And then last week, when I was in Athens, I was booed off stage before I could get to the good bit. But Paul didn't arrive next in Corinth asking them to nurse his bruised ego. It was important for him to learn to lead people to faith in Jesus and not to faith in the ambassador that Jesus had sent them. God had revealed to Paul through his prayer and perseverance the wisdom that what you win people with should be the thing that you win people to. Paul abandoned his polished and forceful presentation in favour of clear content. He said, I'm going to talk about Jesus, I'm going to explain Jesus, and I'm going to lead people to Jesus. 
We read that God got the wheels of evangelism turning when Paul relied on a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that their faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And this power is found in the living message. The wisdom of God is in his gospel. The power to change lives, fortunately for me, does not rest on the talent of the messenger. Belief in Jesus can only take place through God's wisdom, because human reason can only take you a fraction of the distance. The vehicle of reason can never haul you across the line in the sand, which is faith in Jesus Christ. How can you compress the infinite and triune God, small enough to wholly understand him and circumnavigate the uh, difficulty of faith in him? So Christchurch, if you are a seeker of God's wisdom, then keep on searching for the signs of God's power and reflect upon the impact of the gospel in your own life. As 1 Peter 3 puts it, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But if you think, I'm sorry Elliot, I don't often see God's power in my life though, then the best piece of advice that I can give you is come and volunteer at one of our midweek youth groups because God shows up in the lives of Christchurch's young people all the time. And God wants us all to see that and give him the glory for it. If you're not busy searching for God's power and wisdom every day, I'm going to be controversial here. I'm, going to, I'm afraid that you've, you've settled for a life of mediocrity. R.C. Sproul said, our culture is embedded in proud mediocrity. We've junk film, junk music, junk thinking, and we've accommodated it now with junk church. So our culture craves mediocrity, or rather the mastery of mediocrity. And I think the uh, villain of the animated film Incredibles 2 picks this up when the screenslaver says, Heroes are part of a brainless desire to replace true experience with simulation. You guys don't talk, you want talk shows. You don't play games, you watch game shows. Travel, relationships, risk, every meaningful experience has to be packaged for you and delivered so that you can watch at a distance, so that you can remain ever sheltered, ever passive, ever ravenous consumers. Ouch! But the great news is that the Christian doesn't live like this. They deny themselves and they take up their cross. They take daily steps of faith to participate in the wisdom of God, which is the power to affect gospel-shaped lives all around us. Quiet mediocrity rests on the shifting sands of public opinion, and this offers absolutely no foundation for a person's core beliefs. If you're swayed by rhetoric, by emotional manipulation, or the modern methods of argument that employ bullying tactics to force opinions on others, which, by the way, proliferates the social media experience of today, then I'm afraid you're going to see your life swept away like the foolish man who tried to build his house on sand in Matthew 7. I find it interesting that Paul expands on this image in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, saying nobody can lay any foundation other than the one which is already laid, which is Christ Jesus. 
If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So we should believe the gospel as the foundation of our lives, and build trustingly upon the pattern that Jesus, its protagonist, has set for us. Christ alone is the rock who does not move, the wisdom and power of God. This is why the message of the cross is foolishness to the unspiritual man. That's a man who thinks that he can establish his own righteousness on his own terms, just in Paul's words. And we are surrounded by people now who try to build their own towers of Babel. People who look only inwards to try and find a conclusion that suits their limited and narrow experience. Those who form a rationale which can offer compromise or deflect the finger of blame back at God. The wisdom of this age, as Paul puts it, is to act and think in a way that future generations will applaud. But I'm not convinced that this is going to happen. The court of public opinion nowadays swings an unruly stick of weaponized shame and unforgiveness and it boasts how can anybody find fault with me i have crafted myself an argument my philosophy is populist my defense is my denial and that'll be the hill that i die on this argument it's circular but it isn't whole it cancels whatever it deems to be impure but it can offer no vision of what can be holy. It's what Solomon spoke about in Proverbs 14. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads down to death. And the point that I want to zoom in on today is what Paul says in verses 10 to 16 about living in tune with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry I've overshot the lectionary reading by a couple of verses. The Spirit is the teacher who shows us the things in the famous list of Philippians 4. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, he shows us, that we may receive God's wisdom about such things. We are called to prayerfully rely on the power of the Spirit, who searches the deep spiritual truths of God and puts them on a level that even I can understand. Paul tells the Corinthians, you guys have opened your minds and your hearts to the mystery of Christ. That's great. But the Holy Spirit is the one who has delivered the understanding that you require. I kind of think of it like this, okay. The gospel is a YouTube video, and Jesus is the guy who stars in the video. I'm a computer. I can't access that YouTube video until I've got the spiritual Wi-Fi that the Spirit enables, and that allows me to access the video. I can download it, I can set it as my screensaver, and I can share the link with other people around me. So why is the world so hostile to the mind of Christ? Why does it distrust the wisdom of God? 
On January 6th, 1995, a guy called MacArthur Wheeler and another guy called Clifton Earl Johnson robbed two banks at gunpoint, seemingly without any attempt to disguise themselves. Instead, they had heard that lemon juice could be used to make invisible ink. So they reasoned that covering their faces in lemon juice would make them invisible to security cameras. It won't surprise you to find out that Johnson was arrested a few days later, while Wheeler was apprehended in April after being identified in surveillance photographs. Those robberies directly inspired research into something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which concludes that people with little ability in a given field erroneously believe that they excel in it, whilst experts in their field understand precisely how much knowledge they don't actually know yet. I mention this because some spiritual understandings only make sense when the foundational understanding of Jesus Christ crucified is downloaded and accepted first. It's the wisdom of God to say that the Lord Jesus Christ comes first. Daily discipleship to Christ is what gradually pulls back the veil of ignorance and closes the distance between the spiritual novice and the spiritual giant. The Christian God never wants you to stop being a discerning individual, but rather when others think, the Spirit will prompt you to think again. He will provide the spiritual context that comes from the deep things of God and will disclose it for our benefit. The mind of Christ is the Christian mind that has submitted to God and chosen to empty itself. And I don't mean of learning because the Bible places a really high value on wisdom. But to empty itself of itself, to let go of ego, of greed, of control, and of that comfortable mediocrity. It's chosen to become humble and mature in God's wisdom, bearing the fingerprint of the gospel in their life. It does not make sense to the unspiritual man that we should find joy in the peaceful maturity of serving God. I get asked, Elliot, why on earth do you spend your Thursday nights cooking dinners and hanging around with teenagers? Like, what can a child offer you that is worth your time and effort? I've chosen the way of Philippians 3. Whatever was formerly of gain to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I consider everything else a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider it garbage that I may gain Christ. The counter-cultural gospel of Jesus does nothing to build up my pride but it invites me to instead amplify the glory of God through what I think, say, and do. It is the power to lift the fallen, and it calls us out of darkness into light. To those whom God has called, Paul writes, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's teaching shouldn't be thought of as anti-intellectual, it's quite the opposite. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that he will be our instructor, so that we may understand the things that are freely given to us from God. 
We should not measure the wisdom of God just according to the wisdom of the world, but we should ask God to be the one to reveal it, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things as we read the Bible, because the revelation that comes from the Spirit bears fruit. And we know what that fruit looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And how does Paul finish that chapter in Galatians? He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that's why we celebrate communion this morning, to keep in step with the Lord our God. Heavenly Father, we know that we must become less, that you may become more. Would you empty us of our selfishness, our pride, and our laziness, so that we can instead be filled with the wisdom and the power that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, our advocate and teacher, teach us to lean on your constant presence and transform us according to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.